God spoke face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Moses was a meek man, and his writings reflect a deep heart of wisdom that I think has much to teach us as he is warning and reminding the people of God about where they've come from and where they are going. I think there's a lot of application for us who live in the promised land of sorts in the world's eyes. And we too need the reminder of where our true promised land truly is in the Lord's purposes for us. Please follow as I read Deuteronomy chapter 8. Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today, so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years, to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during these forty years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and revering him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, A land with streams and pools of water, with springs flowing in the valleys and hills. A land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey. A land where bread will not be scarce, and you will lack nothing. A land where the rocks are iron, and you can dig copper out of the hills. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees, which I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful desert, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you man to eat in the desert, something your fathers had never known, to humble and to test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands has produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers, as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God, and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 
on somewhat frequent occasion, I'll hear an older adult make a reference with a complaint to temporary memory failure. They cannot place the name of somebody they have acquaintanced. They cannot remember the year that such and such occurred. And they confess half-chucklingly, I'm having a senior moment. Age gets the blame for memory failure. My wife, in the various seasons of her life when she has been pregnant, has acknowledged that she also tends to suffer a kind of short-term memory loss. And this problem is easily excused as the body is transferring its resources to take care of the little one, leaving memory a mere dispensable tool. But then there are times when I realize my memory is not running on all cylinders. I'm relatively young, and I'm certainly not pregnant. So what's my excuse? Moses writes to challenge God's people to remember. I believe that's due to man's memory deficiency. The Bible repeats itself seemingly over and over. Parents can understand this, growing hoarse and frustrated, reminding their children over and over. We forget. We lose track of silly little things. And then there's those times that much more significant things slip through the synapses into neuron oblivion. But most importantly, we forget God's faithfulness. We allow the crises of our lives to push our memories behind stubborn clouds of unbelief and ungratefulness. I believe Moses is writing to challenge us to remember that if we enjoy, if we would enjoy God's blessings, we need to remember his goodness and act on it accordingly. I want to approach this text from three vantage points, remembering God's goodness in the past, remembering God's goodness when we prosper, and remembering God's goodness when we suffer. First thing, remembering God's goodness in the past. First, by looking at God's ways, God as Father, and God's blessings. In verse 1, I believe Moses hits on the theme of the covenant that is prevalent in the Torah. And he's reminding us that there's a way in which we participate with the covenant that God has initiated with us. Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today, that you may live and increase and enter and possess the land and so forth. There's a way in which we may appropriate God's rich blessings as we participate in the covenant that there actually is a condition of the covenant. It's not merit. We're not earning God's favor. Rather, by obedient faith, we are laying hold of God's promises that he gave to the patriarchs long ago. And as he is telling this to the Israelites, he is telling them all of the riches of God's promises are yours for the taking. God has every intention to fulfill his promises to you. And yet the people must take that step of faith. They must enter into the land and take it. They have to demonstrate that faith with abiding trust, keeping up their relationship 
with the living God and prove themselves ready to receive his precious gifts. Now, Israel did not earn the promised land any more than they earned redemption from Egypt. Both are accomplished by God's grace. But to realize those blessings, they must act with all humility and by giving God all the glory. In verse 2 and following, we begin this series of and remembers. This word verb sequence of remember shows up seven times in Deuteronomy and actually double that time in other verb variations. Moses wants the people to remember their journey under which God safely led them through a treacherous and difficult wilderness. He wants them to understand the lessons they have learned, how God had delivered them from their trials, all of which were designed to humble them, to prune them and us of our self-reliance. You see, as rebellious creatures, we are prone to wander, to test God's limits like a child testing mom and dad. But when it says that God tests us, it's not as though God is ignorant. It's not that God needs help in seeing our hearts. No, he is the sovereign, omniscient God of all the universe. He knows everything about us, past, present, and future. And yet, while he knows, we don't. His testing is for our sake. And we need this track record in our lives in which God can point us back to all of our weaknesses, failings, and successes to show us how we were led and carried by his grace. I'm told that uh, you can tame just about any wild animal if you starve it into submission. When a beast is dreadfully hungry, it will yield to the one whose hand feeds it. God, though, is not a cruel animal trainer. He does not starve us into obedience. And yet, as verse 3 tells us, God will deny us our full and satisfaction. He will deny us our immediate gratification to teach us not to live by hand to mouth, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Good parents teach their children the principle of delayed gratification, reminding them that deprivation now means greater enjoyment and blessings later. Parents who fail at this oftentimes suffer raising spoiled brats, but those who succeed raise up children of noble character. And God seeks the latter. We can say in a sense that life is one long process of delayed gratification. We may suffer deprivation in this life. And we're told repeatedly in Scripture that our greatest joys and blessings are yet to come. We will suffer sorrows and setbacks, denials and disappointments. You will not receive everything that you want in this life. And yet, we must learn to submit and receive from God's hand what he deems best for us. Even as we anticipate that great day when we will dwell in his presence and receive far more than we can ever possibly imagine. In verses 4 through 6, we are reminded 
that God is Father, who provides for us, disciplines us, and commands us in a way we should walk. Verse 4, how God provides for us. My wife has a good talent. She is a good bargain shopper. She has to be to keep five children clothed year round. She can find the sales and buys for value. Thankfully, our children grow up so fast that oftentimes it's too quick for their clothing to wear out. However, Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They had no JCPenney's, no Target or Kohl's of which they could stop by to replace their worn-out clothing. They had very few garage sales to scavenge. And it's difficult to make clothing when you're on the move on the go, to store and keep all of your sewing equipment without a home to store it in. Now, Exodus and Numbers make it very clear that God provided the most basic necessities of food and water miraculously before the people of God. But here, Moses is reflecting the fact that God, as a loving father, faithfully provided for the mundane things to protect the body from cold and heat, blisters, to remind us that God is not blind to the basic cares of our lives. Good parents understand that effective, to be effective in disciplining a child, they have to get down to the heart level. You cannot simply discipline outward behavior. Raising up a child to merely perform, either out of fear of wrath or longing for approval. We must rather teach a child to love goodness, to embrace the dignity of obedience and the freedom of living righteously. And so in verse 5, Moses wants us to understand that we know in our hearts that God intends our good. He knows what is best for us, and he disciplines us like a loving father because we bear his name. And he wants us to bear his name to honor him. And he wants us to be everything that he created us to be. In the likeness of Christ Jesus. There's a man who I've grown to admire in recent months. A public figure, you may are familiar with Tony Dungy, who's the head football coach of the Super Bowl champs Indianapolis Colts. In the articles I've read about this individual, it's revealed that his players fear him. And not because they fear his anger or his temper, they rather fear fear disappointing him. Tony Dungy has a style that breaks the NFL mold. He does not swear. He rarely raises his voice. And almost never displays his temper in public. Nevertheless, Mr. Dungy gets results. His players revere him because of his self-control. He listens. He shows compassion. And they know that their coach loves them very dearly. Moses, here in verse 6, is exhorting us to keep the Lord's commands to walk in a state of fear. And biblical fear is not terror, rather it's a kind of reverence to the extent that the very thought of disappointing our God would be repulsive to our minds. 
James Dobson, in many of his books, instructs and shows examples of parents and teachers who have learned to discipline a rowdy brood of children with a proper, healthy balance of love and control. He says that children willingly follow their parents when they are treated with dignity are given clear boundaries when they are disciplined fairly and loved greatly. God is one who gives us dignity, who sets the boundaries, who disciplines us and demonstrates an inexhaustible love for us in Christ Jesus. We are to remember the nature of our God as a tender, loving Father. And then in verses 7 through 10, we're to remember God's rich blessings in the past and in the present. Verses 7 and 8 cast a vision of flowing waters, a land of fruitfulness and plenty. And it's a vision that God gave to Moses to pass on to the people to give them a compelling vision to follow as they are tired and weary in the wilderness. And I believe that we can transfer this to the new covenant age to encourage us. As we find ourselves on a long pilgrimage in a fallen world, to seek a land of plenty, to be reminded from the wilderness analogy that we live in a world that fails, that does not live up to its promises, that it will not quench our thirst. People restricted on a diet of manna hungered for grains and fruit, oil, honey, and other delights. People in our day may diet to avoid sweets, scale back on calories for the sake of their health, their appearance, or just sense of self-worth. But I believe the scriptures exhort us to not diet on God's grace. Rather, we are to be gluttonous. We are to be hedonist, to borrow John Piper's term. The Bible says that we cannot overfill ourselves with the goodness of God's grace for us in Christ. Can you imagine a world without food shortages? Can you imagine no more commercials appealing to us to provide aid for starving nations? No more requests to sponsor a needy child in need of education and nutrition. Moses casts such a vision. A land of plenty, a land of productivity. I think in our day and age that we can read Deuteronomy 8 and almost see it applied to America. We live in a land of plenty. Our GDP dwarfs all of the other nations. And yet even in America, people still go hungry and cannot work. But even for those who do eat, who do find plenty of employment, do they find themselves satisfied in this busy culture in which we find ourselves? I want to ask you tonight, challenge you to ask yourself, do you long for a place untainted by the fear of unemployment, of a retirement that's insufficient, Do you long for a place where God's people can eat and work and play with exceeding joy? A place where contractors don't cut corners. Where the markets don't skyrocket upon a whim. Where the stocks 
don't plummet within hours. Such is the vision of the new heavens and the new earth. We must ask ourselves from the text, did Israel ever really arrive at the place Moses describes? Perhaps the reigns of David and Solomon hinted this, show a kind of miniature fulfillment of this vision and this promise. But I would argue that there is no teasing here. This is no pipe dream. Rather, God does deliver, but Israel, his people, fail. Fail to keep their part of the covenant and must be disciplined. And in the likeness of the Davidic kingship, which would reign in its glory and then die a slow death until its final realization and fulfillment in Christ Jesus, who would be the king over God's people forever and ever. In the same sense, this text is only partially fulfilled in the lives of the Israelite people and will be fulfilled in its entirety in the new heavens and the new earth. And yet, this description seems to fit America for many. And we must ask, is our desire truly fulfilled here? Then we would all admit that America has lots of promise. And yet it is not the promised land. Even still, I would contend that God has raised up the United States of America for such a time as this to extend peace, freedom, and justice throughout a fallen world, and to extend the kingdom of Christ with all of its wealth and knowledge and people resources. I believe that the challenge we face today is that America can mimic a shadowy kind of heaven. We live in an age of incredible wealth. Few of us are denied much to live upon. We have a standard of living that kings centuries ago would covet. And yet I believe that our danger is twofold. We can be deluded by the material wealth, the entertainment, and the health provisions, to the extent that we are so satisfied with this life that we grow to despise the things of heaven. The things of this life can dull the inner longing of our hearts that long for the deep and satisfying joy of Christ. And yet the other danger we face in the day and age in which we live is pursuing with great zeal the never-ending quest for more possessions and finding ourselves never satisfied and discontented. It's a miserable trap, grasping after another dollar, a better vacation, the dream home, more security. We become this world junkies, shooting up on the stuff of life, addicted to worthless titillating things, and find ourselves spiritually gaunt, empty, strung out, and depressed. Jesus warns us to not clamor after worldly treasure. These things rot, rust, they're stolen. Rather, we are to seek treasures in heaven. Fatten ourselves not for the day of slaughter, but for the day of God's redemption. To feast on food that you cannot buy. To quench your thirst 
free of charge. To feed yourself upon the word of God. To satisfy that deep longing by meeting regularly with the Lord your God. And in doing so, we may live like kings and queens. Until the day when we see our king face to face in gladness and great joy. In the second half of this chapter, Moses wants to remind us of God's goodness when we prosper. The theme of forgetfulness picks up here in verse 11. In fact, the verb forget is used about nine times in the book of Deuteronomy and three times here in chapter 8. Moses wants us to remember to keep God's commands. Jesus made it very simple. If you love me, you will keep my commands. We can say that we love God, but it's proof we demonstrated by the way in which we live, and we must live in submission, obedience, and daily wrestling in our brokenness, finding the grace that's sufficient for us to follow after our dear Savior. Verses 12 and 13, in a sense, we see Moses anticipating anticipating the day of great prosperity. You see, Israel actually came out of Egypt with great possessions. It says that they actually plundered the Egyptians. But we can only imagine a kind of diminishing returns over the years as a wandering tribe in the wilderness, people hungering for a better life, more security, prosperity, productivity, And so Moses foresees such prosperity and begins to paint another vision of the day in which they will have plenty of food and beautiful homes and multiplying livestock, and they will be the envy of the nations. And he casts them a warning to not forget from where it all came from. As Americans, we live in a place envied by the world. The nations send millions to us whose eyes are green with the hope of opportunity to take advantage of our freedom, hoping to improve their lives after suffering under corrupt governments, stagnating economies, and brutal wars and instability. In recent weeks and months, there's been a hot political issue in Washington over the matter of our borders and illegal immigration. And I don't have an easy solution for that any more than you do. But I do believe as we meditate on this text, we need to keep our hearts in check. Do we have a miserly attitude towards the alien and the stranger who longs to enter our borders? Or do we rather have a sense of charity towards outsiders who want to seek a piece of the pie that we enjoy in a land of abundance? Of course, we need laws. We need boundaries and standards. I believe there's a danger of becoming greedy, like dogs fighting over a bone and failing to remember where our prosperity has come from, not by our own wisdom, not by our own merits, whether we stand upon the shoulders of others, having inherited a great blessing from our forefathers, and having been handed a rich benevolence from our Heavenly Father, 
from whom comes every good and perfect gift. In verses 14 and 18, the focus shifts from forgetfulness to the notorious problem of pride. As Moses is, is nearing a kind of climax, actually they'll come in verse 17, there's a long argument here that Moses is developing. And he warns against the swelling of the heart in which we have a tendency to glorify ourselves, congratulate ourselves, have an I-deserve-it mentality about our prosperity. And there's this seemingly inverse relationship. The more we glorify ourselves, the less we glorify God and forget all about him. It was the Lord who delivered Israel out of Egypt, and it was the Lord who planted this great nation. It was the Lord who led Washington to victory against overwhelming odds, and it's the Lord who guided the hands of the framers of our Constitution. We live in a land of liberty, justice, and freedom, a great marvel in a world filled with desperate oppression and poverty. And Moses wants to enumerate for us the reminder of God's goodness having provided our safety. First with the Israelites, carrying them through a dreadful desert filled with fiery, dangerous varmints. Miraculously providing them water and food. You and I need these reminders of God's goodness in our lives when we fall into a pit of self-pity. Focusing so much on our trials and hardships that we fail to remember the past. Friend, how has God been good to you? How has God ever failed to be faithful to his promises in your life? Are you consumed with yourself? Or are you consumed with God's goodness and his riches for you in Christ? Verse 16 repeats verse 3 to stress the importance of this principle. That God will provide and he will only deny his people in order to test them. That he might give them more. Another principle of delayed gratification. We know that good parents withhold from their children good gifts. They might give them something better. And so it is with God who withholds not with a miser's paw, but with a father's grip, eager to release the greater in the place of the lesser. So we must learn to wait on God's best and not be greedy for the mere good. Verse 17 reaches its climax in Moses' argument. And in this logic, Moses tells us that we can fall prey to the temptation of crediting ourselves and denying God his glory when we have achieved the success. When he says, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. Is there not a finer description of the mentality of America in the 21st century? By the power of my hands, I have produced all this wealth. Verse 18, it elaborates to remind us that it was the Lord your God who gives you the ability to produce 
wealth. And so confirms his covenant. Friends, if you and I would appropriate God's rich blessings, we must honor him. When we are arrogant, we nullify our partaking of the covenant. We, in a sense, prevent God's blessings upon us. His protection may be lifted as God disciplines us. I know a man years ago who was a church-going man and yet had a kind of defiant spirit towards God and a very foul mouth. And this man, after a time, lost his job. And after a few months of being jobless, this man humbled himself. In a very, very seemingly genuine way, he began to change. He became a new man. And I liked the new man a lot better than the old man. He was going to church. He was doing good deeds. He was cleaning up his act, watching his language, being kind to other people. But then after a couple years, he became gainfully employed again and it didn't take him long to return to his old ways. Some of us need afflictions to be good. When things go well, our pride can swell to massive proportions. But when things get bad, we might get our act together and keep our mouths shut. What do you need to keep you in line? Are you perhaps testing God in your prosperity to afflict you? Or are you learning that sweet discipline of humbling yourself, whether in prosperity, in plenty, or in want, to give God the glory, learning the secret of contentment regardless of your circumstances. And lastly, Moses would remind us of God's goodness when we suffer. Verses 19 and 20 speak a warning upon the nation of Israel if they, for, that they will suffer greatly for their disobedience to the covenant. You know, like them, we are easy to forget. And we make the blame upon God for our sufferings when we are suffering for our own failures and sin, refusing to take responsibility for ourselves. And so Moses is anticipating a kind of forgetfulness on the part of the nation. In verse 19, the word forget is doubled at the front of the sentence, and the word perish is doubled at the end to emphasize that if God's people resolutely turn away from God, God will resolutely turn away from the people. Our privileges as God's children is a dear blessing. Do not despise your birthright like Esau. And Moses would go on to challenge us to resist the gods of our age. You and I are not tempted by Baal or to bow down to Shemosh or worship Molech. Rather, our gods consist of the likes of mammon, fortune, power, comfort, and a whole pantheon of false gods that reign over our society. We can resist this temptation as we reject the lesser joys and seek the greater joys 
in the Lord our God and renounce all inferiors. Renounce all counterfeits that rob us of the lasting joy that comes in knowing Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Lastly, in verse 20, we're reminded that if we act like the nations, we'll be treated like the nations. In the church, we discipline those who fall unrepentantly into sin and treat them like an unbeliever. You reap what you sow. If you want to be like the world, you'll get the world's reward in this life only. Only God can bless beyond the grave. And we seek greater blessings in all of eternity that are for those who honor him in this life. Going back to verse 2, there's another kind of suffering that I believe Moses appeals to. And that's not the suffering that comes from disobedience, but the suffering that comes under a frowning providence of God in which he gives us trials to test us. And we know that these seasons of pain are necessary to prune us of our worldly attachments and to strengthen our appetites for heavenly food. But there's a third kind of suffering that this passage only meekly, thinly appeals to and and anticipates, and that's the suffering for righteousness' sake that we see in the life of Moses, that we see in the godliness of God's people, and that we see ultimately demonstrated by Jesus Christ. And by his followers. It was the lot that fell to Jesus and his followers to be beaten and to be slain. For the testimony to the kingdom of God the Father. Jesus said that if the master suffers, his followers may expect the same. And it was his followers followers who surprisingly rejoiced. They were considered worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Friend, the suffering we may face in this life pales in comparison to the suffering the wicked will suffer for all eternity. All of the suffering of this life is worth enduring as we await a greater day and a greater place which provides us true security, a true shelter, a perfect protection under the righteous blood of Jesus Christ when we will dwell forever in a land of plenty and prosperity, an inheritance that is laid up for us forever through the perfect work of Jesus Christ. I find it ironic how the media constantly reminds us how the world hates America. And yet we find millions of people desperately trying to enter our borders many of them suffering greatly in the attempts because the innate hunger of the human soul for freedom, prosperity, and the pursuit of happiness compels them to come. I can't blame them. I love America. And yet I, for one, live under no illusions that this is heaven. This is not the promised land. Rather, it is what but another chapter in God's massive drama of redemption by which he's expanding his kingdom throughout the earth. And if the Lord tarries, America will rise and it will fall like other great empires 
throughout the history of the world that are all now a distant memory. Friend, are you longing for a better country? Are you recognizing that you are but a pilgrim here, that this is not your home, that you belong to another? Remember that we are merely passing through a barren wasteland and compared to the glory of Emmanuel's land, where no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no heart has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Let us pray. Gracious God, you have given us a compelling vision and confirmation of the inheritance that we will enjoy for all eternity. We thank you for the reminder of your goodness in the past, your faithfulness in the present, and your promise that you will deliver every good and perfect thing that you have bound up for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's in his name we do pray. Amen.